Power buries our dreams under a pile of lies. Power hates to see hope shining in our eyes. When power reigns and plays its games, power kills the strongest wills. But someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to find a way to save the day. Let this be the hour to speak truth to power. Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Ortlum. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. I strode through unfamiliar streets, my mind widening into the night's intimacy. The space between the terraced houses had a presence I called indisclosure, the active sense of a city withholding its meanings. And as I said the word to myself, its sound gained the taste of cotton candy, a too sweet taste, though I kept repeating it anyway, indisclosure, indisclosure, indisclosure. The houses had put out their wheelie bins in the street for tomorrow's collection. And they reminded me of a dream I used to have, of waking up inside a black plastic bag and a dustbin and feeling content there, waiting for the garbage truck to come and take me away from the pain I felt then and still felt now. Tonight, that pain had become a nest of tarantulas. They were dressed in the smeared aprons of butchers and were washing their cleavers in my blood and promenading along my muscles like avenues in an orchard. That was a writer named Jonathan Lyon reading from his new novel, Carnivore. It has just been published in England and will be published in America in November. The publisher is HarperCollins UK. One reviewer of his novel on Goodreads wrote this. What a mind-bending novel this is. It tells the story of Leander, a pretty despicable individual who forces his way through life seducing individuals and selling himself to garner heroin with which to alleviate his constant pain from an unnamed chronic illness. The author has taken a virulent pleasure in creating sentences of such horror and beauty and madness that the reader just has to let them wash over them. The plot is like a mashup of American Psycho, A Clockwork Orange, and Train Spotting, and there are flashes of dark humor surrounded by unrelenting depravity and horror. Nearly all of the characters are decidedly unpleasant, and yet they have been crafted with a soul and warmth that ensures you cannot turn away. There are drug-fueled dream visions here and exciting action scenes. It is a truly kaleidoscopic offering and most certainly isn't for everyone. For me, though, it was a revelation. Well, 
The unnamed illness is chronic fatigue syndrome, and the only reason I even know about this novel is that I happen to look at my Google alert for stories about chronic fatigue syndrome. Jonathan Lyon had written an opinion piece in a British magazine named Attitude in August. I was so taken aback by what he had to say in his opinion piece that I wrote a short essay about him and his piece. You can find my essay at charlesortleb.com. That's O-R-T-L-E-B dot com. Okay, here goes. When I first read a recent piece by Jonathan Lyon, I had to read it several times because it was too amazing to be true. A 25-year-old man who recently wrote a novel called Carnivore penned an opinion piece in a British publication called Attitude about having chronic fatigue syndrome for 10 years. At the top, I would like to say that though this piece is going to sound very critical of Lyon, I wish him well and think he may ultimately play an historic role in ending the CFS cover-up if he wakes up. Having CFS for 10 years is not news, as the first publisher and editor to take chronic fatigue syndrome seriously for a decade in my newspaper, New York Native, I know too many people who have been sick three times as long as he has, some even more. They haven't written novels and they don't have platforms from which to discuss their ideas about chronic fatigue syndrome and its horrors. They suffer in frustrated silence. I have even known people who died of complications of CFS. Now the breaking news line that caught my eye and should catch the whole world's attention is this one, quote, I watched my father die of HIV, so I know its horrors, end quote. WTF. When I read that line to a friend of mine, he said, oh my God, Jonathan Lyon is the missing link. Lyon and his father may be the first visible evidence of something I have been saying for almost as long as the CFS epidemic has been publicly discussed. AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome are two different epidemics in name only. That bifurcation has been politically crafted using distinctions that have been turned into differences, and millions are paying the price for this. As a result of the investigative reporting in my newspaper, New York Native, which is described in my book, Truth to Power, it has become painfully obvious to me that CFS is just the bottom of the AIDS iceberg, or as I have made it clear on one of my websites, the HHV6 iceberg. AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome are two diseases, two epidemics, not on your life. It is fascinating that Lyon doesn't see the transmission issue here that he thinks that his father's disease is useful for illuminating the horrors of his own illness, but there is not a more fundamental existential biomedical link between the two illnesses. That chronic fatigue syndrome is trying to tell us that we have been lied to about the AIDS epidemic, that they are not like each other just in some cockamamie literary sense. They are not coincidental parallel events. They are not ships miles apart, headed in the same direction. One ship, one epidemic. I was sorry to see Lyon quote one of the biggest clowns in chronic fatigue syndrome research, Nancy Klimas. Klimas did one good thing for chronic fatigue syndrome, but it has been all downhill from there. She is now one of the biggest baloney artists earning a living on the CFS circuit and foolishly being treated like an icon. She and a scientist named Anthony Komarov of Harvard seem to be vying for the title of top CFS buffoon. Ron Davis and Ian Lipkin are close behind them and gaining fast. 
Even though Klimas was a researcher on the first paper that said, quote, CFS is a form of acquired immunodeficiency, she has since made a career out of separating AIDS and CFS. She has enjoyed more than her fair share of gravy from the CFS gravy train. She is like a one-woman wall between AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. The folks at the CDC and NIH who desperately want to keep that wall in place must love her. Anthony Fauci should send Climus flowers and chocolates on a regular basis. The sad thing is that her BS has been turned into a tiresome mantra repeated by naive CFS sufferers like Jonathan Lyon, who quotes Climus, quote, I split my clinical time between the two illnesses, and I can tell you if I had to choose between them, I would rather have HIV, unquote. Actually, Climus spends half her time not fully understanding what AIDS is and the other half of her time not fully understanding what chronic fatigue syndrome is. She is the problem, not the solution. The other chestnut he quotes is that CFS patients feel the same every day as an AIDS patient feels two weeks before death, unquote. That line has been tattooed on the foreheads of CFS patients and has been repeated ad nauseum. And when you know it, it comes from AIDS clinician Mark Lovelace, another AIDS CFS apartheid scientist. Its real effect is to prevent cracks in the political and scientific wall between CFS and AIDS. Until the perfidious political and scientific wall comes down between CFS and AIDS, people like Jonathan Lyon can write novels and opinion pieces about their plight 24 7 and nothing substantial will happen because CFS research is built on the carved-in-stone premise that CFS and AIDS are separate epidemics. I explain the diabolical politics of this in my book, Yatra Genocide. The most breathtakingly ironic line in the line piece is this one, quote, chronic fatigue syndrome. Imagine if AIDS was called chronic fatigue syndrome, unquote. Uh, well... This writer has not only been imagining that for 35 years, I've been saying it, arguing it, shouting it from rooftops, devoting books and websites to it. Has this guy not heard of me or New York Native or Nina Ostrom or the three books she wrote on the connection between AIDS and CFS? Do they have the internet in Great Britain? For me, Jonathan Lyon is like the gift that keeps on giving. In addition to telling us about his father's death from AIDS, thereby bringing the AIDS-CFS connection out of the epidemiological closet, he also brings another issue of growing concern out of the closet, the relationship between CFS, HHV6 pain, and the bizarre drug epidemic that seemed to have come out of the woodwork in the last decade or so. Lyon writes, on the night of my 24th birthday, I was staring at my bedroom ceiling, feeling just as terrible as the year before, and the year before, and the year before, with no change, no growth, no hope for improvement, trapped in barren, lonely agony. I decided, like so many others with chronic pain, abandoned by modern medicine, to turn to heroin. And heroin gave me enough energy to write this book. My choice was between poison and silence. Well, this lends support to a suspicion I've had and have mentioned on my website, HHV6 University. Knowing that CFS 
by itself comes with its own agonies, and knowing that painful fibromyalgia in many cases is just another fake diagnosis for the real AIDS, CFS, HHV6 epidemic, I have voiced my concern that the so-called opioid crisis was driven by a viral pandemic. Is a CDC NIH cover-up an untreated CFS, AIDS, HHV6, and its related euphemistic diagnosis driving people to take desperate measures to deal with their suffering? Cover-ups have consequences. When you see someone sitting strung out and barely able to beg for money in front of a CVS store, you may be just staring into the face of the AIDS CFS apartheid cover-up. Let me close with one other sad thing about Mr. Lyon. He calls himself a, quote, queer. Now, I've watched gay people make a lot of catastrophic political mistakes over the past three decades. Believing hook, line, and sinker, what a homophobic government told them about AIDS and HIV was the beginning. Believing that AIDS activists had their best interests at heart and weren't just collaborators with a dishonest government determined to cover up the real nature of the epidemic was another. But the creepiest thing of all was to get people to jump back into the closet of self-defamation by using the word queer as though a word could be purified by the bogus explanation of being reclaimed or neutralized. I've said on more than one occasion that trying to reclaim the word queer is like trying to reclaim flatulence in a crowded elevator. The N-word cannot and should not be reclaimed, nor the C-word or the K-word, nor the Q-word. All those words should be allowed to die a painful death and stay buried. And the young Mr. Lyon should try and lose this obnoxious affectation as quickly as possible. Quote, I was tired of watching queer secondary characters being killed off while the straight mediocrity survived. I wanted to see the glamour, the excitement, the decadence of modern sexuality. Unquote. Yuck. Quentin Crisp, he is not. Hope springs eternal. Will a heroin-free Mr. Lyon realize that he could use his potential new celebrity to wake the world up to the truth about the intimate relationship between chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS? Will he roll up his sleeves and do some serious reading, researching, and thinking, and stop mouthing disingenuous bromides from bogus CFS researchers? We shall see. Okay, so after I wrote that, I noticed that his publisher printed another first-person version of his story on their website. Quote, This is an invisible epidemic. I wrote my book in the hope of making it more visible. I want you to feel what I feel. I'm 25, and I never got to have a youth. It passed by without me, beyond my bedroom window. Instead, when puberty began, I became possessed as though by a demon in some medieval morality play, by pain, a constant, meaningless, incurable pain at the core of my muscles that weakened me into a fog without memories or focus, a pain that confined me to a parallel world, the world of the sick, where being whipped until my blood spilled out would feel like a pleasure in comparison. The pain, like any other kind of demon, eroded away everything of me, my identity, my resolve, my hope, until I was a vacuum with no voice. It felt like being eaten alive. For a decade, I was defenseless. Modern medicine offered no solutions and eventually abandoned me.
Like so many others in agony, with no support, network, no money, no home, I fed on it as it had fed on me and named the novel after this kind of flesh-eating, carnivore. People are said to have battles with cancer. You can win, you can lose, but with my illness, you cannot win. The fight lasts until you are too weary even to concede defeat. That is one of its deepest tortures. You cannot get used to it. Every day you wake up to the pain as if for the first time. You are constantly waiting for an end that never comes. My illness has been given many names, fibromyalgia, Lyme disease, myalgic encephalomyelitis, and, insultingly, chronic fatigue syndrome. Around 2% of all adults have it. But we don't know how it starts, we don't know how it works, we don't know how to treat it. There is no test. In a 2015 study comparing the quality of life of 20 chronic illnesses, including schizophrenia, cancer, arthritis, and heart failure, MECFS scored the lowest by far. It is in an abyss of its own. Getting this disease feels like being passed over by society. There's barely any public awareness, barely any research funding. I wanted to transform my horror into ecstasy. Pain gave me synesthesia, and my book was written in all its colors. I used those colors to tell a coming-of-age story inside a thriller, celebrating sexuality in the age of fluidity. It became a revenge tragedy that was itself a revenge on the demon inside me. It's a scream on behalf of anyone who's been ill too long. And for everyone else, it's a warning. End quote. I haven't read his revenge tragedy yet, but I look forward to doing that. When I saw Jonathan Lyon's opinion piece about his illness and his revenge tragedy it reminded me of something I wrote for a chronic fatigue syndrome journal over a decade ago. It is titled, Where is the Massive Gay Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic? Here it is. While AIDS has dominated the medical news for the last two decades, another potentially major epidemic which the media has generally ignored or minimized has grown exponentially. Originally mocked as yuppie flu, the name chronic fatigue syndrome eventually evolved into what is now known as chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. The Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health, for very mysterious reasons, have been slow to respond to the potentially catastrophic epidemic of CFIDS, which began to manifest itself at the same time as AIDS. Given that there have been many reports of CFIDS breaking out in families, schools, and communities, there is little doubt among serious observers that it is contagious. If this is so, why is it not spreading like wildfire? in the gay community. What biological wall around the gay community has prevented CFIDS from being a major gay health problem? Nina Ostrom, who reported on CFIDS for a decade at New York Native, has written three books giving a detailed history of the research on CFIDS. She has reported on a long list of symptoms and immune aberrations that have been found in chronic fatigue syndrome. Virtually all of them can also be found in AIDS patients. These include problems with T-cells, natural killer cells, B-cells, and monocytes. There are serious neurological, digestive, and cardiac symptoms that AIDS and CFIDS share. Where are all the gay men with the often serious CFIDS problems? Do they have some special immunological protection against CFIDS? Or is it that every gay person who has AIDS also has chronic fatigue syndrome? How does that work? How do doctors treat CFIDS in an AIDS patient? How can we never read anything about that? 
The medical literature is full of suggestions that at the very least chronic fatigue syndrome is AIDS-like. Some research suggests that an even stronger statement about its relationship to AIDS could be made. Nancy Klimas, one of the pioneering CFS researchers, led a team of scientists who concluded in 1990 that chronic fatigue syndrome could be considered, quote, a form of acquired immunodeficiency, unquote. Paul Cheney, one of the first medical doctors to look closely at the epidemic of CFS, has referred to it as AIDS minor. Others have somewhat bizarrely called it an epidemic of something that could be called the mirror image of AIDS. Well, what about the gay community? Where is the epidemic of the mirror image of AIDS in the AIDS-besieged gay community? What is the difference between a gay person with AIDS and a gay person with the mirror image of AIDS? I bet that virtually no members of the gay community are aware that there could be thousands of members of their community with the contagious mirror image of AIDS. Saying that Stevens is not a fatal condition and doesn't deserve any serious attention is not really a fact-based statement. A number of people with CFIDS do seem to have died of complications of their condition. A Massachusetts-based organization for CFIDS patients has a page of obituaries in every issue of their newsletter, and many of the deceased people they report on seem to have died from problems related to their CFIDS. When was the last time you heard of a gay person dying of complications of CFIDS? And even though it may not always be fatal, many CFIDS patients describe their lives as living hells. Why do we not read a steady stream of stories in gay publications about gay people coping with CFIDS? Some estimates of the number of people suffering from CFIDS in the United States go as high as 14 million. If we use the 5% number, which is often used to estimate the number of gay people in America, where are the 700,000 cases of CFIDS in the gay community? How about just 100,000? That should still be a noticeable blip on the medical radar screen. The gay community has been living under a medical microscope for two decades. If there is a major contagious epidemic that is AIDS-like, one would think that there would be all kinds of studies of this AIDS-like epidemic in the gay community. Some people seem to have made careers out of studying the illnesses of gay people. And yet, one never hears of public health warnings about the transmission of CFIDS in the gay community. There are no gay CFIDS commissions, no gay CFIDS ribbons, no gay CFIDS subway posters, no gay CFIDS benefits, no CFIDS quilts. If the worst estimate of CFIDS incidence is accurate, it would seem reasonable to suggest that for every gay AIDS patient a gay doctor has in his practice, he should have one or two or more gay CFIDS patients. And given the similarity of their symptoms, how does the doctor keep his patients straight? It is theoretically possible that a new AIDS patient will have more T-cells than an old CFIDS patient. If a gay person has the symptoms and immune abnormalities of CFIDS, which look just like the symptoms and immune abnormalities of AIDS, and tests negative for HIV, is he given a clean bill of health? And why are gay doctors not warning the gay community about the possibility of contracting CFIDS and giving it to others? Gay people are issued every other imaginable kind of medical and lifestyle warning. Why none for CFIDS? Are we supposed to believe that the gay community is somehow miraculously immune to CFIDS? That would certainly be a fascinating finding, and perhaps a bogus one too. There's a far more parsimonious explanation for why we don't hear about a massive CFIDS epidemic in the gay community. 
Let's just say for now that it is very curious that most CFIDS patients tend to be neither gay nor black, while most AIDS patients tend to be gay or black or both. Nothing political is going on here, right? Gay men are told that the key to protecting their immune system is knowing the HIV antibody status of their partners. But what if their partners have CFIDS? Why are gay men and lesbians not warned to ask about the CFIDS status of their partners and not urged to inform their partners if they have any CFIDS symptoms? For that matter, given that CFIDS has been presented by research as an essentially heterosexual AIDS-like illness, why are heterosexuals not warned about transmitting or contracting CFIDS? Where are CFIDS warning posters in heterosexual bars? Needless to say, I think there is a Pandora's box of a story here. It is one that could lead to a change in the way we look at AIDS and CFIDS. It might even lead to a major medical and scientific paradigm shift. But for the time being, can anyone just answer this simple question? Where is the major epidemic of chronic fatigue syndrome in the gay community? Please keep all of this in mind as you listen to the testimony about chronic fatigue syndrome given by Karen Lambert at a government meeting held in Washington. Hi, my name is Karen Lambert. Um, I'd like to dedicate this to the doctor who told me nine years ago that I had an irrational fear of diseases. He told me that nobody cared about me and that I should stop writing letters and stop fighting because the world does not care. I have chronic fatigue immune dysfunction syndrome and non-HIV AIDS idiopathic CD lymphocytopenia. With these two diagnoses, I believe I am living proof that the AIDS-like CFIDS is transmissible, something that the medical establishment seems unable to admit or to acknowledge. I also believe I am living proof that CFIDS and non-HIV AIDS are basically the same immune disorder. Nine years ago, after a heterosexual sexual encounter, I became seriously ill with what looks like the natural disease progression of AIDS. After an acute infection and a period of asymptomatic health, albeit very short, I fell extremely ill to an unrelenting, progressively worsening AIDS-like demise. I can pinpoint exactly when I was infected with my chronic viral syndrome of unknown etiology. And because my acute infection stage was so distinguishable, I can also pinpoint when my undiagnosed pathogen left my body and infected yet another host. I am a link in a chain of sick people. Whatever I am currently dealing with, it strongly resembles classic textbook AIDS. But to add to my inquiry, I also clinically satisfy the CDC's criteria for a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Increasingly, I've become concerned that my systemic diagnosis is caught up in the treacherous politics of CFIDS, ME, and AIDS. Most people with CFIDS and ME do not like to talk about the many symptoms and immune abnormalities that they share with AIDS patients. I also suspect most ailing patients would rather be told that they have the very mysterious CFS than to be told that they have AIDS. I have a master's degree. I was director at my firm. I used to be a triathlete. I have never used IV drugs. 
I had never traveled abroad. I can count my sexual partners on two hands. I fall into no risk groups. Statistically speaking, I know my undiagnosed infectious and communicable disease is not rare. So you tell me, if they're not in the miscellaneous CFS bucket, where are all these other immunosuppressed people? Anyone with CFS who does not consider the possibility that CFIDS or ME will eventually progress to a non-HIV AIDS diagnosis is very well trumping their own ability to diagnose the root cause of their illness. Why isn't CFIDS and ME a reportable disease overseen by our public health department? Why are ME and CFS the same exact disorder categorized as two separate illnesses on a worldwide level by ICD codes? Doesn't anyone else but me very clearly see the catastrophic cover-up going on? Why are we not reading about non-HIV AIDS cases and or the AIDS-like nature of CFS on the front pages of every newspaper in the world? And if CFS is non-HIV AIDS, then depending upon who you believe, there's anywhere between 500,000 and 28 million Americans out there with a transmissible illness. If that is what it is, our new form of AIDS dwarfs the original AIDS pandemic tenfold. Regardless of how politics may try to dissuade or delude you, all you need to know is that my idiopathic immune dysfunction is infectious. It is contagious and it is spreading. I'm not afraid to say that I have AIDS without HIV. I'm equally as unafraid of saying the most obvious thing about CFS. It sure does look like AIDS to me. If it takes courage to think and to say the things that I do, I hope there will be a miraculous outbreak of bravery from coast to coast and across the pond. If people believe that HIV causes AIDS and that CFIDS could be caused by a retrovirus, why couldn't CFIDS be caused by an undiagnosed strain of HIV? That's where I started my plight nine years ago when I started writing letters. And I haven't stopped. It's nine years later, and I still write letters. And I would like to know why CFIDS and AIDS are not looked at together as one illness. So, imagine if Jonathan Lyon, instead of saying that he has chronic fatigue syndrome, started talking about the fact that his father had HIV AIDS and he has non-HIV AIDS. And imagine if he started to ask some really inconvenient questions about how the hell he got it. Why was there HIV AIDS and non-HIV AIDS in one household? What is going on? Are the two tragedies intertwined? If the medical and scientific community heard this budding new literary celebrity asking that question every time he was interviewed, wouldn't they be forced to sit up and take note? I mean, Jonathan Lyons' non-HIV AIDS didn't fall from the sky. A CFS vampire didn't appear in the night and bite him on the neck, did it? Hopefully he will parlay any literary success he achieves into a more effective public airing of the issue than Laura Hillenbrand. And I understand that more than a million Americans 
have this disease, but it is so mysterious. Tell me about it. It's formally called chronic fatigue syndrome. It's now generally known as ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis. It is a disease that causes, above everything else, profound exhaustion. Um, exhaustion in the lines of you can end up completely bedridden for a year. You can have trouble speaking. You're so tired. It also causes a lot of other symptoms, problems with your balance, sensitivity to light, uh, night sweats, chills, swollen lymph nodes, fevers, all sorts of things. So it's really a devastating disease. But it has caused you to have to work in a very different way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me a little about that. Well, uh, in the years in which I've been exhausted, it's, it's been something where I've had to drag myself to my computer or to my telephone to do interviews. and. It's, it's, uh, it just takes a great deal of, out of me to do the work. My principal problem these days is vertigo, it's a balance disorder. Um, that makes reading and writing extremely difficult. So I have to kind of work around the room spinning and tipping and I have to work in small increments of time because I, I will get more and more dizzy as I work. It's very difficult to work with this, but I've found ways around it. But you almost never leave the house. I leave it much more now than I used to. While I was working on the book, I was a lot sicker than I am now. And there was actually a span of time of two years while I was working on the book when I was unable to leave the house a single time because I, I simply wasn't strong enough to walk to the car to get out of the house. So I was in it. But I did keep working. I worked every day one way or another to get it done. That was Laura Hillenbrand talking about Schieffer on Face the Nation on CBS. One does not begrudge Laura Hillenbrand the great success of her two bestsellers. And yes, one can't but admire the fact that she wrote them, despite the fact that she seemed to have one of the world's worst cases of vertigo that has ever been associated with chronic fatigue syndrome. But boy, has she squandered so many opportunities to tell the public the hard truths about chronic fatigue syndrome. Imagine if she had emphasized to Schieffer that chronic fatigue syndrome is contagious and anyone can get it, that the agent that causes it is probably in the blood supply, that for over three decades the CDC has virtually been letting the illness spread, that it has been called AIDS light, AIDS minor, and most accurately of all, HIV negative AIDS. I know what you're thinking. CBS would not have let her say that, or they would have gotten someone from the CDC to say she is full of you-know-what. But celebrities with CFS have got to start bravely trying to get the truth out. If everyone just plays it safe, this disaster will go on for many more decades. One of the newest CFS celebrities is bound to be Jennifer Brea. She raised thousands of dollars from the CFS community to make a documentary about CFS. It was well received at Sundance and it has been sold to PBS and it is getting a major theatrical release. There is even talk that it might be nominated for an Oscar, but that isn't necessarily good news. So, five years ago, this was me. I was a PhD student at Harvard, and I loved to travel. I had just gotten engaged to marry the love of my life. I was 28, and like so many of us when we are in good health, I felt like I was invincible. Then one day, I had a fever of 104.7 degrees. I probably should have gone to the doctor, but I'd never really been sick in my life. And I knew that usually, if you have a virus, you stay home and you make some chicken soup 
and in a few days everything will be fine. But this time it wasn't fine. After the fever broke, for three weeks I was so dizzy, I couldn't leave my house. I would walk straight into door frames. I had to hug the walls just to make it to the bathroom. That spring, I got infection after infection, and every time I went to the doctor, he said there was absolutely nothing wrong. He had his laboratory tests, which always came back normal. All I had were my symptoms, which I could describe, but no one else can see. I know it sounds silly, but you have to find a way to explain things like this to yourself. And so, I thought maybe I was just aging. Maybe this is what it's like to be on the other side of 25. <laughs> Then the neurological symptoms started. Sometimes I would find that I couldn't draw the right side of a circle. Other times I wouldn't be able to speak or move at all. I saw every kind of specialist: infectious disease doctors, rheumatologists, endocrinologists, cardiologists. I even saw a psychiatrist. My psychiatrist said, "It's clear you're really sick, but not with anything psychiatric. I hope they can find out what's wrong with you." The next day, my neurologist diagnosed me with conversion disorder. He told me that everything—the fevers, the sore throats, the sinus infection, all of the gastrointestinal, neurological, and cardiac symptoms—were being caused by some distant emotional trauma that I could not remember. The symptoms were real, he said, but they had no biological cause. I was training to be a social scientist. I had studied statistics, probability theory, mathematical modeling, experimental design. I felt like I couldn't just reject my neurologist's diagnosis. It didn't feel true, but I knew from my training that the truth is often counterintuitive, so easily obscured by what we want to believe. And so I had to consider the possibility that he was right. That day, I ran a small experiment. I walked back the two miles from my neurologist's office to my house. My legs wrapped in this strange, almost electric kind of pain. I meditated on that pain, contemplating how my mind could have possibly generated all this. As soon as I walked through the door, I collapsed. My brain and my spinal cord were burning. My neck was so stiff I couldn't touch my chin to my chest, and the slightest sound, the rustling of the sheets, my husband walking barefoot in the next room, could cause excruciating pain. I would spend most of the next two years in bed. How could my doctor have gotten it so wrong? I thought I had a rare disease. Something doctors had never seen, and then I went online and found thousands of people all over the world, living with the same symptoms, similarly isolated, similarly disbelieved. Some could still work, but had to spend their evenings and weekends in bed, just so they could show up the next Monday. On the other end of the spectrum, some were so sick they had to live in complete darkness, unable to tolerate the sound of a human voice. Or the touch of a loved one. I was diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis. You've probably heard it called chronic fatigue syndrome. 
The key symptom we all share is that whenever we exert ourselves physically, mentally, we pay, and we pay hard. If my husband goes for a run, he might be sore for a couple of days. If I try to walk half a block, I might be bedridden for a week. It is a perfect custom prison. I know ballet dancers who can't dance, accountants who can't add, medical students who never became doctors. It doesn't matter what you once were; you can't do it anymore. It's been four years, and I have still never been as well as I was the minute before I walked home from my neurologist's office. It's estimated that about 15 to 30 million people around the world have this disease. In the U.S., where I'm from, it's about one million people. That makes it roughly twice as common as multiple sclerosis. Patients can live for decades with the physical function of someone with congestive heart failure. Twenty-five percent of us are homebound or bedridden, and 75 to 85 percent of us can't even work part-time. Yet doctors do not treat us, and science does not study us. How could a disease this common? And this devastating have been forgotten by medicine. When my doctor diagnosed me with conversion disorder, he was invoking a lineage of ideas about women's bodies that are over 2,500 years old. The Roman physician Galen thought that hysteria was caused by sexual deprivation in particularly passionate women. The Greeks thought that the uterus would literally dry up and wander around the body in search of moisture, pressing on internal organs. Yes, <laughs>、um, causing symptoms from extreme emotions to dizziness and paralysis. The cure was marriage and motherhood. These ideas went largely unchanged for several millennia until the 1880s, when neurologists tried to modernize the theory of hysteria. Sigmund Freud developed a theory that the unconscious mind could produce physical symptoms when dealing with memories or emotions too painful for the conscious mind to handle. It converted these emotions into physical symptoms. This meant that men could now get hysteria, but of course, women were still the most susceptible. When I began investigating the history of my own disease, I was amazed to find how deep these ideas still run. In 1934, 198 doctors, nurses, and staff at the Los Angeles County General Hospital became seriously ill. They had muscle weakness, stiffness in the neck and back, fevers—all of the same symptoms I had when I first got diagnosed. Doctors thought that it was a new form of polio. Since then, there have been more than 70 outbreaks documented around the world of a strikingly similar post-infectious disease. All of these outbreaks have tended to disproportionately affect women. And in time, when doctors failed to find the one cause of the disease, they thought that these outbreaks were mass hysteria. Why has this idea had such staying power? I do think it has to do with sexism, but I also think that fundamentally, doctors want to help. They want to know the answer, and this category allows doctors to treat what would otherwise be untreatable, to explain illnesses that have no explanation. The problem is that this can cause real harm. In the 1950s, a psychiatrist named、um, Elliot Slater studied a cohort of 85 patients who had been diagnosed with hysteria. Nine years later, 12 of them were dead, and 30 had become disabled. Many had undiagnosed conditions like multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, brain tumors. In 1980, hysteria was officially renamed conversion disorder. 
When my neurologist gave me that diagnosis in 2012, he was echoing Freud's words verbatim. And even today, women are two to ten times more likely to receive that diagnosis. The problem with the theory of hysteria or psychogenic illness is that it can never be proven. It is, by definition, the absence of evidence. And in the case of ME, psychological explanations have held back biological research. All around the world, ME is one of the least funded diseases. So, in the U.S., we spend each year roughly $2,500 per AIDS patient, $250 per MS patient, and just $5 per year per ME patient. This was not just lightning. I was not just unlucky. The ignorance surrounding my disease has been a choice, a choice made by the institutions that were supposed to protect us. We don't know why ME sometimes runs in families. That was a section of Jennifer Bray's TED Talk. It has had 1.4 million views on YouTube. You'll be seeing a lot of her in the coming months and years. There is a real danger that people like her and Laura Hillenbrand will continue to control the chronic fatigue syndrome narrative. They'll keep doing publicity for chronic fatigue syndrome and make people pity them and thank God that what happened to Hillenbrand and Brea hasn't happened to them. What Brea and Hillenbrand won't talk about is that chronic fatigue syndrome is a contagious illness. They won't make it clear that they got the illness from someone and they are capable of transmitting it to someone else. Why? Because the CDC and NIH won't say it. And why won't the CDC and the NIH say it? Because they have screwed up a huge public health matter and they have endangered the lives of millions of people. Isn't that painfully obvious by now? Brea and Hillenbrand don't want to scare the audience into thinking that they could actually contract this illness from another person. They want to make it appear that the disease just happens from a kind of biomedical spontaneous combustion. It's amazing how Brea and Hillenbrand just ignore the pioneering investigative journalism that has been done on this illness. They never talk about the groundbreaking work of Hillary Johnson and Nina Ostrom. Frankly, talking about CFS without mentioning the foundational work of those two journalists is like talking about Watergate without talking about Woodward and Bernstein. Reyes says, quote, This was not just lightning. I was not just unlucky. The ignorance surrounding my disease was a choice, a choice made by the institutions that were supposed to protect us. Unquote. The reporting of Johnson and Ostrom is the main reason we know it was a choice made by the institutions that were supposed to protect us. Ironically, Brea's ignorance about the disease seems like a choice made by a documentarian that people gave money to so they could know the inconvenient truth about CFS. She is so right this wasn't just lightning. Chronic fatigue syndrome, or non-HIV AIDS, is a contagious illness, and she got it from someone. And the notion that CFS patients like her can't give the illness to others is just wishful thinking. Her statement that we don't know why the illness sometimes runs in families is willfully dishonest. We know all too well why it runs in families. It is a contagious illness. Are we really supposed to believe that this Harvard PhD candidate hasn't read Hillary Johnson's book with its numerous pages devoted to the troubling evidence of the transmission and contagiousness of chronic fatigue syndrome? Did she not read in Johnson's epic history of the CFS cover-up 
that the most honored first doctors and researchers in the field, Paul Cheney and Dan Peterson, were, quote, persuaded that the disease was contagious, unquote? Who is not persuaded? Well, the very institutions that Brea says are choosing to be ignorant. In some ways, she is their new best friend. I don't know what Brea thinks she is doing with the money she got from the patients to give her for her documentary. It takes a lot of nerve to take money from the CFS community so she can ignore the best journalism on the topic and whitewash the epidemic. Yes, epidemic. Not of lightning, not of bad luck, of a virus. And one that is all too obvious, but that is a subject for another show. Jennifer Brea has a kind of shtick that is effective in making people pity her, but she is no Michael Moore or Elizabeth Warren of chronic fatigue syndrome. Pity really goes nowhere. People can feel pity over wine and cheese every night as they watch the evening news. Brea and Hillenbrand do not convey the real sense of a cover-up or crime going on. The audience will not be moved by their shtick to raise their fist and scream, we must end this injustice. Telling the truth about chronic fatigue syndrome should leave people afraid, very afraid. Fear is a great motivator. They should leave a Brea speech afraid they can contract her contagious illness and that their lives will be ruined just like hers. That gets people involved. That gets people marching and calling Congress. It would have taken great courage and honesty for Brea and Hillenbrand to say what Karen Lambert says so effectively about chronic fatigue syndrome. It's much easier to take money from a beleaguered CFS community and make a documentary full of pity-generating suffering that will be celebrated by TED Talk and Hollywood elites than to put all the cards on the table about the contagion issue in CFS and its obvious links to the AIDS epidemic. As Jonathan Lyon, the writer I discussed at the beginning of the show, begins to emerge as the newest celebrity voice of the CFS epidemic, I hope he will emulate Karen Lambert and tell the inconvenient truth about chronic fatigue syndrome. I pray he is not afraid to discuss publicly the serious implications of having HIV-negative AIDS in a household where there was also HIV-positive AIDS. His story could start a revolution. At the very least, I hope Jonathan Lyon won't choose to be willfully ignorant the way other CFS celebrities have. As far as his new novel that he describes as a revenge tragedy, I would say that the best revenge for someone suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome is telling the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you haven't read Hillary Johnson's book on chronic fatigue syndrome called Osler's Web, pick up a copy at Amazon. Johnson's up-to-the-minute reporting on chronic fatigue syndrome can be found at oslersweb.com. All of Nina Ostrom's books can also be found on Amazon. If you like what I'm doing here and want to support the show, please buy a copy of my book called Truth to Power on Amazon or purchase one of my other books, which you can find at charlesortleb.com. That's O-R-T-L-E-B.com. And please don't miss next week's show. I interview the number one chronic fatigue syndrome researcher in the world, Dr. Jose Montoya. It's one of the most important interviews I've done in my 35 years of covering the story. I'm going to close today with a song called We Must March, My Darlings. I wrote it with Chris Davidson, and it is available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and all the streaming services. I want to dedicate it to everyone who is daring to tell the truth about the relationship between chronic fatigue syndrome, HHV6, and AIDS.
We must march, my darlings. We have a situation. Never had such a challenge. Faced a generation. We must march, my darlings. Link arms with a stranger. Together we can weather. Unexpected danger Precarious, nefarious Clouds are rolling in Mothers fear their sons And all their pretty ones We'll take it on the chin Where do we begin? In this dark and angry wind We must march, my darlings Your heart must find true north We must march, my darlings Our world's in despair And time is out of joint It's more than one can of beer We must march, my darlings We'll be known by what we do Don't count on someone else It all depends on you Precarious, nefarious Clouds are rolling in Mothers fear their sons And all their pretty ones We'll take it on the chin Where do we begin? In this dark and angry wind We must march, my darlings Your heart must find true north Darling